Good morning, listeners, and you're welcome to this week's Ag Report on Tip FM. I'm Jim Finn. Now, later on in the programme, I will be talking to Una Niverin. Una is one of the four farming women who are going to feature on Manaw Natira on TG Cahar over the next four weeks. I will also be talking to Larkin Roach Kelly from the Irish Farmers Journal and to Dennis O'Reilly from Premier Meats in Thurles. My first guest this morning is Gordon Peppard from Chagas, and Gordon is going to be uh, talking about collaborative farming. Good morning, Gordon, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Jim, and thanks for having me on this morning. Okay, good to have you. Uh, it's a while since you've been on Ag Report on Tip FM, but look at it, it's good to have you back. Okay, collaborative yeah, farming. Well, Can you tell me and my listeners what is collaborative farming, Gordon? Yes, so I suppose what what is collaborative farming? So it's it's where two or more farmers come together to work together, and I suppose it's done in a formal arrangement for for mutual benefit. And I suppose like any arrangement, it it must be a win win situation for everyone. And I suppose maybe the reasons that we need collaborative farming is to assist with. Uh, skilled labour. It's very difficult to get labour now, so if this brings skilled labour in, it, it hopefully will help the age status of Irish farming, uh, make land more available to people that want to farm, uh, improve things like farm safety, and I suppose it's, it's the pooling of skills and resources, Jim, where the younger people will bring in the adaptation of the new technologies, the, the older, more experienced people will bring the experience and the stability. And I suppose it's like collaborative farming is like any arrangement. You need to have cooperation, uh, compromise and trust for any of these arrangements to work. OK. And then what are the main farm businesses, structures involved? Yeah, so in collaborative farming, there's there's a number of uh, farm structures that, that are done through this method. And I, I suppose the most common one is probably the, the registered farm partnership and, and also the succession farm partnership. But there's other ones there then, like share farming, um, which can be done maybe in tillage and dairying. Uh, there's contract heifer rearing. There's there's also contract calf rearing. Uh, there's long-term leasing of lands. And there's also sh- machinery sharing set up. So they will be some of the most common collaborative farming structures that are out there, Jim. Yeah. And the one uh, that we're going to, I, I suppose, talk the most about th- this morning is registered farm partnerships. Now, they're around, Gordon, since 2015. How many of them are now registered in the country? Yeah, so that's that's correct. Uh, there were initially milk production partnerships, and since 2015, they're now registered farm partnerships. So the Department of Agriculture keep a register of all the registered farm partnerships. So at, at this point in time, we have over 3,500 registered farm partnerships with the department. We also have about 150 succession farm partnerships. And if you, if you look at the registered farm partnerships, predominantly they're family farm partnerships between a parent and a child. But we also do have some non-family farm partnerships, which maybe might involve two neighbours or maybe two distant relatives. But predominantly fam, family farm partnerships, Jim. Yeah, and then... Why would farmers want to join a registered farm partnership? 
Yeah, that's that's a very common question that I'm often asked, and I often get a phone call from maybe a, a parent who are in their early 50s. They have three or four children in the family. Um, they need to maybe educate all those children. They have a few expensive years coming ahead of them. Uh, hopefully, they have a lot of years ahead of them themselves in the business. But they have maybe a son or daughter who has went through the education, has their green certificate and wants to return home. So the parent maybe realises that they're too young to hand over the farm, but they really would like to encourage the young person to come back and be part of the business. So the Registered Farm Partnership, I suppose, it creates a a family farm pathway from one generation to the next. Uh, All partners can be recognised in the business in terms that there's agreed responsibilities, but the young person also has a profit share within that business. Other benefits, I suppose, is the young person, as we said, will bring home the new ideas and the skills Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they'll have the enthusiasm, while the the parent will have the experience and the stability to guide the young person. I suppose the added advantage there is that you now have maybe two or three people involved in the business. You can share the workload. You might even get a weekend off or maybe take time for a holiday. So there's enhanced work-life balance there. And then I suppose, look, there are the social benefits. There's also financial benefits in terms of taxation incentives and scheme benefits. So, look, I suppose the taxation benefits um, depend on the number of partners in the partnership and depending on the profit share, you can maximise the income at the low rate of income tax coming into the, the family farm. There's also stock relief there available. There's 100% stock relief for the young trained farmers uh, ratio on the profit share. And there's enhanced stock relief for the parents. In terms of the schemes then, the obvious one there, I suppose, is the TAMS grant and the doubling of the investment ceiling. So in a scenario maybe where you want to develop a farmyard, you can get up to 160,000 grant aided. Right. You also have the collaboration grant then, a 50% grant aid for setting up the partnership in up to a spend of €3,000. And then I suppose the scheme, the basic payment or the new BIS, mm-hmm. as it will be called in 2023, there's an opportunity there to avail of the Young Farmer Scheme, which is very attractive now, up to €170 Euro per hectare mm-hmm. for an eligible young trained farmer. And then if there's land with no entitlements or low-value entitlements, you can apply to the National Reserve to get those topped up or to get new new entitlements. So in all in all, there's a lot of social benefits, a lot of financial benefits, and it is a great way to bring a young person who's interested into a family business. Gordon, okay, setting up partnerships can be a tricky business. So who should uh, a farmer who is considering it who should they be talking to yeah so i suppose there's a number of people if you're thinking of setting up a partnership that you could maybe talk to and i suppose the more research and homework you do to gather the information the better informed you'll be and the better partnership arrangements you set up but i suppose you should always start with the people that you're hoping to go into partnership with and by and large that's your family members sit down and see how it'll work in practice ensure everyone is catered for and another, another set of people I would always recommend uh, farmers interested in registered farm partnerships, that they talk to farmers already in a partnership. 
draw on their experiences and see what are the pros and cons. In terms of the professional people, then you're going to be looking at obviously the accountants. The accountant will have a big role to play in setting up the agreements, looking at the capital account, uh, deciding on the profit share and ratio, and discussing future tax implications if there's a, a land transfer maybe down the line. Mm-hmm. You'll also need to talk to your agricultural advisor. I suppose the, the interaction with the schemes, uh, ensuring that the herd number is correct and that the entitlements match up. And then your solicitor, if if there's any amendments need to be made to the template uh, agreement, they maybe need to update the will to match mm-hmm. to match what what's going to happen on the ground. And they will liaise then with the solicitor and the accountant and the agricultural advisor then. They will all liaise together. The district or the regional veterinary office then, I suppose, if there's any changes to the herd number, they will need to be contacted. And then obviously the farm partnership office to submit your, your application. Okay, and then you're talking about the application. Is it a big job in filling up this application form? And then is there a closing date for applications? Yeah, so I suppose like any application, there's a little bit of paperwork involved with it. Um, the partnership application has to be submitted to the farm partnership in the Department of Agriculture. Uh, even though applications can go in at any time of the year, there is a sort of a closing date of the 10th of February 2023, and that's to have a farm partnership number before the May 15th deadline for submitting your BIS application next spring. I suppose, what, what are the main things you have to do? I suppose the first thing you should do is talk to your agricultural advisor just to make sure all the schemes are in order and is there any schemes that need prior approval to change. You need to set up a partnership bank account, so whoever is going to be in the partnership needs to be on the name of the bank account. If there's a young person coming home and going on the farm herd number, the herd number will be need, need to be changed. You'll need to talk to your accountant about getting a tax reference number with revenue. They will also assist you with the capital account and decide on the most favourable profit-sharing ratio. There's two agreement documents then that need to be completed in terms of an on-farm agreement and a partnership agreement. And then you will just need to have a copy of the folios of the land or a copy of the lease of the land if you're leasing land along with the, the Level 6 Agricultural Qualification, which is the Green Cert. So they're, they're the main things mm-hmm. that, that need to be submitted, uh, Jim, when you're applying for a registered farm partnership. OK, uh, one very last question to you this morning, Gordon, before we leave, because we're beginning to run out of time. But, you know, you mentioned shared farming in the beginning, and, and how does that differ to a partnership? Yeah, so I, I suppose a share farming agreement is slightly different in that there's one farm, but there's two separate businesses operating on that farm. So it, we generally have a share farmer and we have a landowner. So every uh, party needs to do their own budget and have their own uh, figures done that they can make a profit. So a very simple example is you might have a landowner that maybe wants to step back or, or to, to take a lesser role and they might supply the land and the facilities. And then you might have a share farmer who has no access to land but wants the farm. So they might bring the cows and bring the labour to, to the farm. So a very, a very simple share farming agreement there could be 
that the inputs for producing the milk could be split 60-40 um, and then the milk sales could be split 60-40 as well. The animal sales then will be 100% to the person that owns the stock but equally all the costs of the veterinary and the AI etc will be 100% to the, to the stock owner. The landowner then would receive all the, the scheme payments but they would be also responsible for the repairs and maintenance on the farm or anything to do with the land. Right, so it's slightly different. Look at, I'm out of time. Look at, thank you ever so much, Gordon, for joining us this morning. That listeners was Gordon Peppard from Chagas. Listeners, my next guest this morning is Una Niverin, and Una is with me to talk about a programme that is just about to start on TG Cahar, and it's all about ladies in farming, a very topical subject, I can assure you. Good morning, uh, Una, and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jim. Delighted to be here. Okay. Now, we say this programme is all about uh, women in agriculture, women, uh, farming women. So, Una, how long are you farming? Well, uh, 20 years since uh, we started Beachlawn Organic Farm as a, a farm and a business, but I started studying organic horticulture, I suppose, 23 years ago. And how have you found it? I love it. I'm very passionate about it. Um, it's been quite the roller coaster, I suppose. And it was never classic farming as such. Um, first of all, I was um, a little bit different because I grew up in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Although I spent summers on farms in Roscommon. And then we visited um, the countryside in Mead as well as a child. Uh, I, I, I spent summers on farms, a, a, lot, of, a lot of time doing the hay and the turf and watching cattle and sheep and and that and hens. And I remember all that from early childhood. So that would have had a big influence on me. Okay. Both my parents are from the country. Good childhood memories. And what do you do on your own farm then? So it's all vegetables um, that we grow. And last year we grew 50 acres of organic vegetables, mostly outdoors in, on field scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have polytunnels as well. And we grow about 25 different types of vegetables. That's another reason why it's it's not classical farming either. Mm-hmm. And it's organic as well. It's certified organic. Okay. So uh, it was always a bit different. You keep mentioning we, so I take it you're not running the farm on your own? No, it's myself and my husband and business partner, Porik Fahi. And he's from, uh, he grew up on the farm where we where we grow veg uh, in Ballinasloe, County Galway. Mm-hmm. So uh, he grew up on that farm and his, his father had dry stock cattle. Mm-hmm. But initially, actually, they had they had um, dairy cows. Yeah. But when and they used to sell the milk as well. Mm-hmm. But in 1979, a pasteurization came in and they decided they weren't going to go down that route. So they stopped uh, doing that. But his father became a milkman. Mm-hmm. So when Porik was a, a teenager and, and younger as well, his father was a milkman. And as Porik got a bit older, he started helping out. So he at one stage, he was pretty much running the business for his father. His father was sick at one stage. And mm-hmm. so he had early experience of running a business like that. So that's where he had his business skills from. And then I suppose I having had influences from uh, from my childhood. And then I came at it from an environmental perspective. So so um. I got into organic horticulture because I started out being an environmentalist who wanted to 
stop mm-hmm. climate change and save the planet and that. But I used to campaign on environmental causes and then I found that quite draining and difficult. And I said, well, I'd like to be part of the solution then and then fighting, fighting the problem. So I, that's how, why I started studying organic horticulture. Okay. And that's where I ended up meeting Corey because he was studying there as well. Okay, all that's extremely interesting. Just about to tell you that you seem to be 20 or 30 years ahead of your time where we now stand with environmental issues anyway. Look, the programme then on TG Cahar is about women in farming. And from your perspective, what is the difference between women farming and men in farming? Well, for me, uh, because of my age, it's a bit harder for me because in my whole, my whole life, I always felt like a bit of an imposter. Um, I've never really felt like I was a proper farmer. Now, that was down to my self-confidence as well. But also because when I was growing up re- reading books, you know, mm-hmm. the farmer was always a man, you know, and you'd sing the, sing, the song, you'd sing with the farmer once, a wife, and, you know, and the wife once, a child. And... You know, the women were seen really more in the home and the, 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 the man was out doing the farming and whatnot. Although really across the planet, you know, a lot of farming is actually done by women. A lot of work is done by women. I would have had that challenge, I suppose. And then um, these days it is, it's, it's definitely much easier uh, for women to get into it. There's a lot more incentives and there's a lot more supports. And women are recognised as farmers and as being, the, you know, the boss in the farm. You know, women can be seen as the boss. And in in the past, a woman wouldn't be recognised as being a boss. You know, Mm -hmm. they couldn't be in charge and that. But it's it's great. These days, it's a huge, huge incentives for women. And it's a lot, it's getting a lot better, you know. But we we do have a problem with our self-confidence around being in charge of a farm. That's the only thing. Are there enough of women in farming? Oh, definitely not. No, I wouldn't say so. No, no, I don't think not yet. We're not there yet. No, no. Mm-hmm. Um, there, well, or if there are, I mean, there are plenty of women in farming, but they're not seen as the main farmer, as in they're working away in the background and mm-hmm. they don't get the, I suppose they don't get the, the praise, they might get the credit for the work being done. And in fairness, it's also because women don't put themselves forward as much because we tend not to have as much confidence as men and that's the kind of a natural thing but we we don't give ourselves as much credit but also women can just and not to be tarring everyone with the same brush you know i know there are always exceptions but women tend to get caught with the chores at home and if you know if there are problems with children the women do not always now there are definitely mm-hmm. lots of men who look after this side of things but women do tend to get caught where a woman might have to cancel a meeting uh, or not go to an important event because there's a child at home sick, you know, Uh, or, you know, there's something that has to be done. Um, Whereas, you know, traditionally it's easier for a man to just literally walk out the door and go off and and get involved in, you know, leadership in other areas. We'll say going out to their IFA meeting or their Macron and Fermi meeting or whatever it is, their Thal of Bio meeting, you know, get involved in, in, in agriculture, get involved more so, speaking speaking up more so, mm-hmm. get involved more in these things, yeah. Okay, now, how many then of your women farmers are in this programme? There are four of us, right? Um, and we feature in each programme. So mm-hmm. starting on the 23rd, which is Wednesday, it, the, the programme starts at 8.30, I think. Thank you, yeah, I think so. Yeah, 
And during the 25 minutes of the programme, each farmer will be shown. So each of us are in, we're in every programme. So the first programme was filmed in the springtime. Mm-hmm. And then we the second programme was filmed in the summer. And then we have autumn and then winter. And in my case, the winter programme was actually filmed after Christmas. It was actually in January or February even Yeah. Uh, by the time we got to it. So the last program was a challenging one for us because we'd we'd had we were just in a difficult enough time, and the farm because all of the repercussions of COVID and and Brexit mm-hmm. and everything kind of hit home, and then you know the downturn seemed to be coming. Our energy price crisis was coming, and all that. That was last. That was filmed there last spring. Last, so last I found spring. the last program, yeah, the, the, the sorry last last January February. I've, that was a challenging enough program to 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 record, um, but it it I mean I told the truth you know and yeah. it, it's important to do that. Um, I've the other the other women were very inspiring for me. Um, it's it's great to see uh, the other women involved. It's great great to see such a variety as well. But, Isn't um, that great? Now you said to me yeah. you have fifty acres of vegetables and mm. polytunnels as well. Yeah. And you're living in Ballinasloe or you're farming just outside Ballinasloe. Are you nervous about the future of farming and the future of the planet? Um, I, I am a little concerned, yes. I mean, I've been an environmental, an environmental campaigner for longer mm-hmm. than I was an organic grower. And I suppose I knew about a climate crisis, our biodiversity crisis for a long time. And I suppose I thought that 20 years, 20 plus years after I got involved in these campaigns, that I would see an improvement. But actually, we're situation now than we were then. So I was involved 25 years ago in the Glen of the Downs, um, trying to stop them cutting down Down ancient sessile oak Mm -hmm. oak trees. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, 25 years later that we would have realized. But um, things are actually in a worse in a worse situation as regards um, biodiversity crisis, insect um, crisis, and then um, and climate chaos, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's a worry, you know. Um, but I have to, I have to think positive because otherwise I'd give up, you know, and that's what most people find that, you know, if they, if they get too down about it, they, they feel they just, they're just frozen in, in, in kind of not being able to do anything, you know, so you have to just think positive and think I can do something and we can do something as a society and you know, just do okay. your best. Now, I believe you are, have relations uh, in County Tipperary. That's right. Uh, so my husband's uh, first cousins are the O'Connors from Nina. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're a great big family with a great tradition in uh, retail. They they had supermarkets there. And mm-hmm. and I suppose the, the, the business kind of uh, skills that are in the family would would have come through to to, to Porik, I think, too, to my husband who came through his mother. Yeah, it's great to have cousins in in Tipperary, and then my husband's sister uh, lives in Clock Jordan as well, Jenny Fahey, okay. and her son Connor as well. So, mm. yeah, we've loads of links to Tipperary. I'm quite sure you visit on the right, eco the, village. The, the eco village, of course. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, yeah, the eco village, and they're, and they're. I mean, I suppose they're years ahead of their time as well, and that intentional communities is what was what was the idea, and uh, to try and live more sustainably, and and that's what they're doing. They have their own farm there, and um, their own produce, veg boxes, and 
lots of great uh, initiatives for sustainability, living sustainably in, in a community. Of course. Well, look, at I'm running out of time. I want to thank you ever so much for joining us. I will be glued to the box on next Wednesday night to uh, see the first episode. And I've already had the privilege of seeing a little trailer of it. So I'm really looking forward to seeing you. And I'm quite sure we're all going to enjoy uh, Mana na Talun er TG Kahar. Gurmila Mahagat Jim. August Gurmila Mahatu Fain Slan. My next guest this morning is Dennis O'Reilly. And Dennis is the man that fronts up Premier Meats here in Thurlis. And you may or you may not be aware that Dennis's butcher shop won the Best of Tip Awards a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, I met Dennis at the awards and promised him I'd be in the day after, but I didn't get in the day after, but I have now got in to talk to Dennis. Dennis, congratulations. Thanks very much, Jim, and you're welcome to Premier Meats. I know I always am welcome to Premier (laughs) Meats. But, more importantly, this award, what does it mean to you and all your staff? Well, sure, um, starting out, as we started out as uh, family butchers, and um, to grow each year, and see our customers growing and, and um, become, become friends with our customers. And, and it means a lot when they had to give us the vote. And it means a lot to us that they went out of our trouble, out of their way yeah. to, to go about that. And uh, that's what really sends a message home to us, like that we're doing something right anyway, and, and people appreciate it. Like. Well, we all know you're doing something right. But more importantly, Tipperary is a very big county. And to come out the number one, and there are a lot of butchers in Tipperary, yeah. some of them with fancy names. Yeah, well, two of our competitors would be um, Paddy Dwyer and Cashel and Martin Dwyer and Cashel. And uh, I'd be good friends with Paddy, and I would know Martin from the word go. When we opened up, I went over to meet Martin and had a chat with him, and we'd be buying sausages off of Una. And I would consider Martin Dwyer um, one of the top butchers in the, in the country, yeah. and um, himself and his wife, Marion. And they've not but been helped to us since we opened up. So to be in the same category as them lads, I, I would be just over the moon, like, yeah. Yeah, and it's great to know that there's a camaraderie between your rivals. Oh, sure, yeah. It's your competitors, but you'll be yeah. friends as well, like, and yeah. you'd have to appreciate what they're doing and learn from them as well, like, and, and uh, it works both ways, I think. Right, now, you say you must be doing something right, but every time I walk into the shop and I look at the display, there are different things in there presenting meat in different ways to the customer. Yeah, well, I would have started off working with Robert Tormey, and, and in his time, he was the, he was the main man around, a butcher, a quality butcher, mm-hmm. and uh, it comes from the traditional butchers as well. Yeah. But I went, when I went working with um, Joe Hermansler, you'd, you'd learn off Joe because he had a slaughterhouse, and bit by bit, but really when I went to work with Pat Wheeldon in Clonmel, he took butchering to a different level, and there was a constant buzz in the shop, and, and you'd every day was like flat out and learning and all about presentation and how to do it right and uh, that's what I try to transfer into our shop Okay, now the customer has changed from the time you started butchering a person came in looking for three lamb chops or a yeah, sirloin of beef or whatever the case may be but nowadays uh, and you know, when I looked at the display here in the shop nowadays you have things that are ready to cook almost immediately for the customer. Well, I think, the, and I don't mean disrespectful to 
to my mother's time and all this like but um the modern woman has, has demands different things like so yeah. and she's out more or less she's out working as well so when she comes in and the kids are hungry or the husband's hungry or whatever um they want ready to go something that's fast and is tasty it doesn't take two hours to prepare so you have to think of that when you're preparing the counter and if you don't have them like she won't come in she'll just go someplace else that has it like and are you and your staff then always trying to come up with something new yeah, I, I constantly be thinking about an, a new yeah. idea and the lads be laughing at me like, what's this we're going to try today? And I say, look, try it anyway. Some things work and some things don't. And it's it's about always progressing, I think, and with modern life anyway. Okay, we're five weeks away from the big day. <laughs> I know roughly anyway, this yeah. weekend. And I suppose some of my listeners, and in particular probably the non-farming ones, would be getting a little bit anxious now seeing that there's avian flu and some turkeys being killed. Will that cause any problem or do you think it will cause a problem? There is a worry. At the moment, it's not a problem. Yeah. What people have to realise is the free-range turkeys, they have been out and they have been running around happy as Larry. Like, But at the moment, they will be indoors because the weather is the weather is getting cold and they're on a bit wait for Christmas. So they won't be outside as, as much as they would have been. So, and with the bird avian flu, they have to be kept indoors now. But that that would be the normal anyway. So, right. at the moment, everything is 100% and everything is going grand. So, um, I would relay that there's no worries yet. No. I'm going to go back an, an awful lot of years now, uh, Dennis, to be honest with you. But I remember talking to you one time about bronze turkeys, and I couldn't tell you whatever other type of turkeys. But you did send me out to Feathered and into a flock of turkeys. Are you still getting turkeys from that sort? <laughs> no, Pat stopped doing the turkeys back yeah. evening, yeah. Um, just the overall, a lot of small producers did stop because the overall costs, it wasn't paying them to do it. And um, But there's, there's crow meats in, in Dundrum have a massive selection of turkeys there now at the moment. Right. And um, that's what we'll be dealing with. That will yeah. be your main source. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, it's a pity then, isn't it, that some of the small people have gone. It's an awful pity, but that's the way things are going, Jim. And it's so hard, especially with the with the cost of everything at the moment. We see a lot of small producers just are gone out of business. But it's not viable. If you put a van on the road, trying to pay for the van, try to pay a man to drive it, um, it's just it's not viable. So that's the way things are going, and they're heading that way. Yeah. Right. And then in your own business, then again, maybe the big multiples are affecting you know some of your colleagues. In butchers, you have to have a range at the moment. Yeah. You have to have a range of products. Like, mm-hmm. But it's hard work in having all them products and keeping them all fresh. But unless you have it, like, you need the customer spending a volume of money to pay for all the yeah. costs at the moment. The ESP bill has gone triple at the moment. Oh, no. And that's across from restaurants to chippers to butchers to anybody where there's high-power electricity being used. Farmers are seeing yeah. it as well, I'm sure. Like So um, you have to keep an eye on everything at the moment, way more than you had before. Because costs of, when you buy something today, that could be, that price could change from even mm-hmm. yesterday. Yeah. Like, and if you don't, we were, we were selling something there last week, we were selling there last, because I didn't cop the, the yeah. docket, the price yeah. had changed. I, did, I didn't notice it. And uh, so there's not much future in that. So the job becomes harder. Yeah. Uh, uh, of course it does. And are you still able to source most of your product locally? 
and I mean locally now, yeah. within a, a range of 50 miles. Yeah, well, we've never changed our suppliers, Jim. Right. So from the minute we opened up, I still have the same suppliers. Neil Tynan and Johnstone is our slaughterman. Yeah. We buy all our beef, all our sheep off him, right? Um, and the lambs will be sourced, like Mary Russell, and, uh, outside yeah. the road. Yeah. Uh, to be all local, yeah. yeah. Beef is all local. Yeah. Chicken, the chicken comes from Manor Farm. Now, even though Manor Farm is up in Cavanagh, right, but their, their, their farmers might be County Limerick, County Cork. It varies every day, but um, all Irish as well. And we do all our own breaded chicken, so everything we sell in the shop is breaded. There's a lot of work in that, but it's all prepared in-house um, on the premises. So um, all local, yeah. Yeah, okay. We've even uh, local honey from Holy Cross at the moment, which is brilliant. Yeah, uh, and, and, and yeah. things like that, Jeff, because, yeah. because uh, the discerning customer now is looking for as much local as they possibly can. Yeah. I suppose all these foodies and health people, mm. they say everything should come from your locality. Yeah, well, especially with people, honey. Honey mm. is a big thing mm. that I learned. Uh, mm. It's yeah. all got to do with the pollen, and yeah. if, if honey is very beneficial to you health-wise, but if it's not, it's more beneficial if it's local, and uh, so, so we're delighted so to have that now so as well. Yeah. It's coming in from Holy Cross. Yeah. Okay, I want to congratulate you again on winning the Best of Tipperary Award for 2022. I know we all had a great night up in the honour, and well done to you, but also to your staff, because you wouldn't be able to do it without no. staff. And um, and that's a factum, yeah. And I'm very lucky, like. But at the moment, if one of them left, I'd be in trouble because there's nobody coming in looking for a job, and there's nobody wants to do this job at the moment. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But at the moment, anyway, we have a strong team. And um, but most of all, I would like to say thanks to Tip FM as well because he's been very good to us in doing the advertising and all that, putting our name out there. And um, I'd say thanks to Tip FM as well. Well, you've been very good to us to advertise on well, Tip it, FM. It works so both ways. Dennis, it works well. both ways. Yeah, yeah, well, so look, at once again, congrats on winning the award. And uh, I'm glad to hear that there will be plenty of meat of all descriptions in Premier Meats here on Schlievedemann Road in Thurles to see everybody over the Christmas. That listeners was Dennis O'Reilly from Premier Meats. Uh, the winners of the TIP FM Award for uh, the Best Butcher for 2022. Listeners, my next guest this morning is Larkin Roach Kelly, and Larkin is the agribusiness editor with the Farmers Journal. And some of you may be aware that uh, they published a very interesting booklet article in the journal with regard to agribusinesses and particularly the contributions that the agribusiness makes to rural communities and Larkin is with me to talk about it. Good morning Larkin and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning Jim, great to be here. From your perspective, what is the most outstanding element of your normal Irish Farmers Journal KPMG agribusiness report? But what stood out to you the most? Um, first of all, I, th- I think like, this is our 10th uh, annual KPNG Irish Farmers Journal Agribusiness Report. And it, we were trying to look at, um, kind of when we were to figure out what we are going to write, but we said, like, let's, let's just let's have a deep dive into um, some parts of the Irish, econ- Irish rural economy and see what the actual numbers are. Because like, we all know, everyone knows farming is the most important indigenous industry in Ireland. It's very important for our agriculture, very important for exports, very important for so much stuff. 
but like we need to kind of be able to put a price on it. Let's put a price on it. And we figured the best way to do it because KPMG are really good at this kind of work. And they said if we pick a couple of towns, uh, do a really in-depth job on four or five or six, four or five towns around the countryside, and then we can extrapolate that out to a national level we want. So I suppose the thing that surprised me is that I knew it was big, but when we put all the numbers together, you see how big it actually is. That's a surprise because it's like we hear nationally, I suppose, about the big kind of companies, the idea you could bring in like the, the Googles and the Facebooks of this world. But farm agriculture knocks them all into a cock hat when it comes to economic impact and employment within the country. One of the things that strikes me then when you say that, that that's really not recognised. I think that's one of the big things that we, why we did the report, because like farming is lots of very small individuals or families running small businesses, and then those small businesses feed into slightly larger businesses that are generally based close by. And that's where we, so that's where we looked at the towns like Enniscorty, Cavan, Charleville, and Ballyhonson Republic, and Cookstown, north of the border. Because these towns are kind of, they're not on anyone's mental map of Ireland. When you, when you have a map of Ireland, you think, oh, we think Dublin and Cork and Limerick and Galway and Sligo and places like that. But you don't think of these smaller towns that are absolutely the backbone of the rural economy. So when a euro was spent by a farmer um, in his local town, it's not, people don't really see it very much. There's no big kind of shiny office building somewhere in, in Docklands in Dublin to say this one is moving and this one is important. So that's, again, why the job of work we did here to show how much money is there that maybe you don't see it and maybe you need to show a bit more. So here we are showing it to you. The Irish agriculture industry produces billions of euro every year, employs tens of thousands of people, and it really needs to be looked after. And when I'm looking at a snapshot now of the towns that you that are in this particular report, Charleville comes out as the one with the highest number employed. Is that because Charleville is in the middle of the dairy industry as far as Ireland are concerned? Maybe people up in Kilkenny might argue that with me, but, you know, we're down there in Charleville, the Golden Vale, dairy is big business. Dairy is definitely big business in Charleville. Like, if you look at the numbers, Charleville produces 1.7 billion euros per year into the Irish economy. And if you look at a beef-dominated place like Ballyhonas, where beef is the big industry, you're at 700 million. Still a substantial number, but one billion smaller than Charleville. And it is, I think two things are at play. First of all, that yes, that, that it's in the hearts of Golden Vale. You've got good land, you've got dairy, and dairy is a much more cash-rich business because dairy farmers, the, the money going in and out of dairy is, is a multiple of what you see in, um, in sector farms. But also, I think that because Charleville has such a long tradition of being um, that kind of, you know, that, that big dairy place, like the industry is really very mature there. But what I mean, like, 30 years ago, Golden Vale was there, and they had a, a, a well, they, a, the stories we heard when doing the research was Golden Vale had a stainless steel um, fabrication plant where they used to make the piping and stuff for dairy farmers to put into their um, their parlours. They closed that down 30 years ago, but the skills that were there amongst the guys working stayed in the area because all the guys that worked for Golden Vale set up their own little places, and now there's five or six or seven guys doing doing this kind of work, stainless steel tanks and stuff for Charleville, for the Republic of Ireland and for across Europe. So you have this kind of this multiplier effect over a long term period where you get this high value industry that creates other high value industries around it. So you get this clustering effect and that clustering effect is what leads to the, the high growth in Charleville. OK, you went to every single province in Ireland. So again, you went north of the border for the uh, for Northern Ireland. And again, very, uh, you know, very impressive figures. 
Yeah, and again, like Cookstown is like Norway. We've got like this kind of pig and poultry centre there. So what we try to do as well, rather than just go geographically as well, we try to catch each kind of farming, each bit of farming in the country, if that makes sense. So in Ballyhonus, we beef. In Charleville, as you said, we have dairy. In, in Escorty, we kind of, it's more tillage on that side. Cavan is a real strong mix of everything. And North Border in, in Cookstown, then they've got the pig and the poultry area there. So we're trying to kind of say, okay, different geographic areas have different types of farms. So they kind of need different supports. Like there is a real thing with, um, I suppose, policymaking that they try to do a one-size-fits-all kind of um, policy with support for things. And maybe you need kind of slightly more targeted things for different areas because different areas have different needs. Right. Now, looking at the survey responses to the challenges facing the sector, I suppose the one, two, three and four there are no surprise to anybody. Absolutely. Well, I think the, the number one this year, if you ask anybody, what's the biggest problem in any business anywhere this year? And they will tell you it's inflation. And that's exactly what a survey is showing. 96% of people say input costs are a real problem. And I think they're a real problem for two reasons. First of all, obviously, if you're paying the input costs, that's bad because your costs go up. But also for looking at it from an economic growth perspective, the three things that are gone up are the three Fs. We call them the feed, fertilizer, and fuel. And I think with those, like when a farmer pays for diesel, or a farmer pays for fertilizer. That money he pays for, that leaves the local economy. That goes to wherever that fertilizer was made, which is somewhere in Europe or somewhere in America, or, or goes where the diesel was refined, which again, normally in Europe, or sometimes in America at the moment, it used to be in Russia. So the, the thing we have there is you have euros that are leaving the local economy. And that's kind of what we don't want. We want the euros to stay in the local economy as much as, they, as we can, because the more euros the farmer spends in his local area, the more employment will be in the local area which is a very positive thing we look for. But also because yours have been spent in the local area, you're not seen on the national level, which is, again, why this report exists. I think the other thing I'd like to just flag on the risks, yes. I think the the, the, form of the, the, the the getting people into farming, getting young farmers to join the industry is what's highlighted the risk by several people. And it is, I think, one of the really critical policy responses that I think is definitely more help is needed on that side. Because farming is still seen as a low-income, long-hours, dirty, lonely job. And it needs to, kind of, the outlook on these change, but also the supports for young farmers who need to be much more kind of focused on getting young people in because the average age of farmer, as we know, keeps rising in the country and that's not sustainable because if we start losing farmers, everything else falls apart because this entire rural economy, as you see these big numbers out, they're all based around farming. And if the farmers go, everything else goes as well. And I'm looking at the results of that as well, and I'm kind of surprised at the fact that the reintroduction of a proper farm retirement scheme didn't feature in that. Well, I suppose that the, 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 those, those were responses we got from people, so yeah. maybe... And I think one, the one thing that did come up then, that was like, like a lot of people saying, like rather than having people farmers rent out land, to maybe have more land for sale, which mm-hmm. again, that that's a that'll be a difficult one to change. Now, I'm sure in the short term, but because like as you know yourself, like Joe, the idea of selling land is an anathema to a lot of farmers, no matter what age they are. But it is just something so that like the barriers to entry into farming are really quite high. Unless you're unless you have a farmer in the family, it's very hard to start into farming from scratch. And maybe that's something that could be looked at as well. But there could be some kind of you know government grant for starting out farmers. They could actually help them buy some land or something. But. We'll see. I won't hold a breath on that one, I don't think. Rightio. Well, look at Larkin. We'll leave it for this morning. Thank you ever so much for joining us here on Tip FM. That listener was Larkin Roach Kelly, who is the agribusiness editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. That listener is 
Agriport for this week. I hope you enjoy the show and that you'll join me, Jim Finn, at the same time next week for another Agriport on Tip FM. Coming up next is the news at 10 o'clock, and after that, Eamon Dwyer presents Down Your Way. <laughs>